Welcome to the third season of In Search Of. My name is Amy Frickholm, and I'm the host of In Search Of. I am so excited to be sharing this next season with you. I think you're going to find so many delicious things to think about. Things that will change perhaps the way that you understand history and how history gets written, and tradition, and the Bible, and theology. At least, that's what's been true for me. Each Ash Wednesday for the last three years, we've embarked on a journey into the unknown. We've paused to wonder about the nature of truth and the meaning of searching itself. We've also considered things like whether scientists can make a universe in a lab, or what dreams teach, or what food desert saints ate. It's been a wild ride. This season, we're going in search of the forgotten worlds of lost Christian women. This is a subject that has honestly fascinated me for many years, and it's been the subject of two of my books. Once I went searching for the forgotten world of Julian of Norwich, and I think I found that so fascinating and so illuminating that a second time... I went in search of an even more elusive person, Mary of Egypt, whose life and work has honestly inspired this podcast and who I think of as the patron saint of this podcast, if podcasts can have patron saints. So this season, I will be talking with scholars and storytellers who've dived into archives and embarked on long journeys, taking significant risks to tell the story of women who've been lost to the historical record. Some of these women will be so familiar that we will have to ponder the meaning of the word lost, and others I can almost guarantee you've never heard of. Still others will be seen in a new light as we bring to them an honest search. We're starting the search with a bonus episode in one of my favorite places, the desert. Before we kick off the season, I'm excited to share with you a lecture that I gave to the Oblate community of the New Kamaldoli Monastery in Big Sur, California about the women of desert Christianity, and specifically about the life of Mary of Egypt. So join me as we head into the desert to deepen our understandings and to explore the unknown. New episodes of Season 3 of this podcast will begin February 14th and will continue being posted weekly until April 3rd. Thank you so much for joining me in the search. So I wanted to start with um, just some thoughts and some frameworks for understanding women in the desert more broadly, and then kind of zero in on Mary of Egypt. So interestingly, many scholars have guessed that there were far more women in the desert than there were men. So even Palladius, who was an ancient historian, guessed that the women outnumbered men in the desert two to one. And others have suggested that the number was actually much higher um, when this desert movement kind of spread throughout Christianity. And of course, we know that it's fairly common that um, women in the Christian tradition have started movements and then um, they they don't often get credit for those movements that they've started. And I think the problem maybe even goes a little bit deeper in the sense that... um, we often understand the desert and desert spirituality through archetypes and archetypes that have been really important to us, or at least to me, as I have taken this, this path that maybe we could call it the um, via avia, which is what it's been often called in the tradition, right? The way of no way. And so um, when we're talking about the desert and the things that draw us to desert spirituality, we're often talking about, silence, simplicity, solitude, and oftentimes those come to us through male archetypes. 
And so we often imagine women in sort of communal settings or in other kinds of settings, but we don't often imagine them in these solitary settings in the desert, partly because one of the pr most prominent stories we have about desert spirituality comes to us from um, St. Anthony, who we often talk about as the first to go into the desert and establish a monastery um, around 270 is when he established that monastery. And, um, and people spread desert monasteries throughout Judea um, and into the territory um, that is now Jordan, spreading hermitages and monasteries throughout that area. And that's really what, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about desert spirituality. I'm talking about those regions from Egypt to Jordan, which were, you know, quite distinct. Actually, there are lots of things to talk about in ways that monasteries differed from Egypt to Jordan. But that's the area and the time that I'm, I'm largely dealing with here, which would be roughly 270 in the common era, um, up until the fall of Jerusalem in 638. So we're talking maybe a 400-year period where Christians really went into the desert and created, first of all, created both monasteries and hermitages throughout um, throughout that desert. So in Palestine, in the desert of Palestine, there were at least 3,000 male monks that were spread out over 60 monasteries and 10 miles uh, square of open country. And um, in often in the in the image of this that we have, we, we think of women as exceptions to this, but they were actually not exceptions. They were uh, more common than men in this area. And it, and it makes sense in some ways if you think about the way that women were in the in the in the Christian tradition were seeking ways to be um, to have greater authority. Um, what Laura Swan in her book on the desert mothers talks about how Christianity moved from a home-based movement to an empire-based movement in this period. And so as an empire-based movement, women lost a lot of personal authority. They lost a lot of the ability to teach and to preach and to lead communities that they had had um, in a home-based movement, which was much more suited to the way that women were situated in that society. So as it moved to a um, to more of an empire-based system uh, and empire-based um, institutions, women lost a lot of power. So it makes sense in some ways that they would have gone into the desert um, as looking for ways to pursue their path in Christianity um, in ways that, that allowed them greater freedom. And that is in, in many ways the story that we're going to tell about Mary of Egypt. Um, but it is funny to kind of look back at some of these old um, perceptions of women in the desert. So, for example, in the desert, in the sayings of the Desert Fathers, there's one disciple of Abba Sosuis who says, where is there a place without women except in the desert? And we know that that isn't actually accurate, that there were uh, many, many women in the desert. But that was the... Mm, the perception that was being built. And then one desert mother, when he, when she heard about that disciple um, saying that her, she said in response, um, well, one takes oneself wherever one goes. That was her response to um, hearing that Abba, so that the disciple of Abba Sosius had said, where is there a place without women except in the desert? Um, the motifs of women in the desert are a little different than those of men. 
Um, there are three motifs that, that I think really speak to how women in the desert, the stories that we tell about women in the desert. The first one is flight from the world. So women are often depicted as either fleeing a life of sin, prostitution comes up quite a bit, or escaping marriage, escaping a bad marriage, something like that. So there's a flight from the world, that's one. The assumption of male attire, so they put on men's clothes. And then another important motif is the discovery of these women in the desert by a man. Um, there's one conversation that's recorded in Mosaic history that has really long intrigued me. I don't really understand it, except that if we try to understand that women in the desert were often perceived as, as strange, outside of the culture, maybe not interpretable, having difficulty interpreting who they are and what they're doing there. And this is a story that's told about a monk named Serapion, the woman that he is speaking to is not named. Um, and the difficulty that Serapion is facing is that he can't quite perceive a woman as a holy, solitary figure. Um, so solitary women are often treated in the tradition as dangerous and holy men are treated as, um, as people to be revered. And so here's an example from, from this story. The monk named Serapion meets a solitary woman in the desert. And Serapion says, why do you remain solitary? And she answers, I do not remain solitary. I am on a journey. And then Serapion asks, where are you going? And she says, to God. But the story at this point takes a violent turn. So he demands that she strip naked in public to prove that she is in fact dead to the world, that she is in fact a true monk. And then she refuses to obey this um, order from him so he reprimands her and he mocks her and i found that story disturbing but i also found it disturbing on the level that um he didn't recognize her as a solitary as a holy solitary person i'm assuming he would have recognized a man in that same position but he does not recognize her as a solitary and what's a bit odd about that is that women and men who lived in the desert often lived in very similar ways. So they often wore the same attire, which in the tradition is called male attire, but, you know, simple robes. Um, they ate the same food. They had many of the same ways of life, ways of earning a living, because women solitaries like male solitaries felt that it was very important that they make their own living. So they often wove baskets, they sold various products that they made, and that kind of thing. Um, an interesting fact that I encountered as I was studying the desert during this period is that this period of Christian habitation in the desert coincided with a really unique period of rainfall in these lands, so that the monks who lived in the desert were able to actually cultivate the desert a little bit, and cisterns were sort of set up everywhere around the desert to, to gather the water. So it's a very unusual time period that when the when Christian desert spirituality began to fade toward the seventh century, one of the reasons was that the climate was changing. And as the climate was changing, that that place was was emptying out a little bit in terms of the ability to cultivate food um, or collect water in the desert. So it's not the same landscape that we see today when we go into the Palestinian desert, into the Judean desert. We don't see the same, um, we don't see the same landscape because that landscape has really shifted and changed over time. 
Um, so we're talking about, when we're talking about men and women in the desert, we're talking about really three kinds of monks. And this was as the period of Christian um, mon monasticism was, was growing. So one of those was a hermit called an Aramite who found himself or herself a cave and lived in it. This is the kind of monk that uh, Mary of Egypt was. And eventually this type of monk evolved into a second type where a monk lived in a cave, but then also gathered with other monks once a week for communion and then went back to the cave. And this kind of, this kind of um, spirituality is still alive in the desert today. Um, when I was there a few years ago, there were monks who were living in caves and then would return to the monastery about once a week, take communion, celebrate um, with the, with the commu community and then go back. And then a third kind of monk, the Cenobite, that lived in a desert monastery, um, so lived there permanently, also had his own or her own cell, um, but was in community, not just once a week, but but every day. And this is, of course, the kind that evolved into the monasticism that we're familiar with in the West today. So these monks had two modes. One mode was a, well, I'm speaking specifically about um, maybe the, the first two kinds of monks, the Aramite and then the, the cave dwelling um, who participated in the community, but weekly. And there we have two modes. And one mode is the teaching mode. And this is where we get a lot of the desert, the sayings of the desert fathers and mothers that we are familiar with because they were often, people would often come to them as disciples, sit with them, learn from them, even live with them. And then, learn what they what they taught and then pass those sayings along trade routes and then those were eventually written down so that's kind of the formula that we have for how these desert saying desert sayings came into being and many 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 desert uh fathers and mothers were teachers and the most famous desert mothers were um were these these kinds um partly because they taught therefore they were connected with other people therefore they we could write down their their sayings and so on so um, these teachers included uh, Ama Sarah, um, Ama Theodora, who was well-educated. So sometimes um, you can distinguish the, the different kinds of uh, desert mothers by their level of education. Um, and Ana, um, Ama Sincletia was known for being really, really gritty and down to earth, which I think is one of the things that many of us really love about desert spirituality is just how gritty it can be. So she would often talk about laundry. She would talk about illness and sickness. Um, she would use just many really domestic and, and homey and gritty images to, to, to give her teaching. Um, so one of her famous sayings is there are many who live out in the wilderness behaving as though they were still in town. Their efforts are wasted for it is possible to be solitary in mind and spirit while living in the midst of a throng of people or to live as a solitary while pressed about as though by an unruly crowd in one's own thoughts. And um, I certainly can relate to that. Um, so Male and female ascetics in this mode lived in relatively the same way. They lived in extreme simplicity. Sometimes they had disciples who followed them into the desert. They taught and they received guests. Their saving, sayings were passed along and eventually written down. And then others lived in more extreme solitude. So these were the people who went out into what was called the heart of the desert. And they lived without connection to the outside world. Um, so this was the mode of the recluse and numerous sources speak of women who cultivated this kind of solitude and who would meet no one. Um, 
And that brings us to Mary of Egypt. So Mary of Egypt is a female solitary who is one of the most, who up until the Enlightenment anyway, was one of the most popular saints in the Christian tradition. People loved her story. And this is still true in Orthodoxy today. Her story is always told during Lent. And um, my understanding is that people will often flock to the the ceremony to the to celebration where her story is told and then they'll leave right afterwards so they really people really love the story of mary of egypt in the orthodox tradition and i very much came to love this story as well um her story was written down as a hagiography probably about 150 years after her death although we don't really know when she lived i think it makes sense to put her in the fifth century because some elements of her story really require us to have a strong um, cult of the Virgin Mary, which really we don't get until the 5th century. So it, sometimes people have placed her earlier, but I'm not sure how they can piece together the elements of her story that way. And then her story was written down probably about 150 years later. So let me just tell you a little bit about this story. Um, it's been treated in the Western tradition as a legend. But for some reasons, which I can go into a little bit, I don't think it is a legend. I think what we're finding is that, once again, when we're talking about these desert traditions, we're dealing with both archetypes and real human beings. And it gets kind of confusing. Where the real human being leaves off and the archetype begins, where the archetype leaves off and the real human being takes place. But I think there's really good evidence to think that she is a real human being that lived and died in the Jordanian desert. The story, uh, now, that being said, I can also say that there are many elements of her story which um, we don't really know. We have no way of knowing if they're true or false. Um, so the story of Mary of Egypt goes like this. She was 12 years old when she ran away from her home in Egypt. We don't know where that home was, but presumably it was somewhere along the Nile. And she ran to the big city, in the story that we have of Mary of Egypt, we don't know why she ran away from home. It's one of the it's a it's one of the big mysteries because she herself does not say. I think we can we can suggest that maybe some of those reasons might be that she was betrothed to somebody who she did not want to marry. She could have been sold by her family into slavery. She could have been um, she could have run away because her circumstances in her home were violent. I think we can imagine that her reasons for running away from home may not have been that different than the reasons that people run away from home today, um, that a young girl of 12 would leave her home. So she ran to Alexandria and for 27 years, she lived there and as a prostitute, a spinner of flax and a beggar. So from this, we can kind of conclude that she was among the kind of different kinds of prostitution available in Alexandria at that time. She was a street prostitute. And the tradition really says that she never had a home. She never lived anywhere. She lived in doorways, for example, the tradition says. So when she was about, um, I'm sorry, she lived there for 17 years. And when she was about 29 years old, she was on the seashore um, and she saw people running toward ships and she asked someone where they were going. And they said that they were going to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Holy Cross. And she said, basically, and um, I want to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Holy Cross. How do, you, how do you get on one of those boats? And the person standing next to her said, well, you have to have money. 
And she said, well, I don't have any money, but I do have my body. So she sold herself to pilgrims as a way to get to Jerusalem. Um, and this might be really, this is one of the parts of Mary's story that might be the hardest for me to really make sense of because Mary herself in the, in the story we have of her, she never talks about herself as the victim of sexual violence. She never talks about herself as any kind of a victim, but it's a little hard to imagine how a woman would go onto one of these boats and, um, sell herself for sex without being a victim of sexual violence. I think that sexual violence is a really important way for us to understand the story of Mary of Egypt and especially what comes later. But of course she lived in a society that didn't necessarily have a language for that, didn't necessarily have a way of talking about that. So she herself never says that she was a victim of any kind. In fact, in the tradition of the desert, she blames herself for almost everything that happens to her. But at the same time, when I try to piece the story together, I can't quite do it without sexual violence and, and Mary being the victim of exploitation. So she gets to Jerusalem. She makes her way to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and she tries to get inside. And what happens there is that she pushes and she shoves and she tries to get inside so she can venerate the Holy Cross. And for some mystical reason, she's prevented from getting inside the building. And she eventually finds herself alone in the courtyard. And in the courtyard of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there's an icon of the Virgin Mary. And she begins a dialogue with this icon. And I love this part of the story because it's it's mystical in the way that I understand the mystical. It's mystical in the sense that Mary never speaks to her. It's not like Mary climbs down from the icon and starts interacting with uh, Mary of Egypt. She just... Um, Mary of Egypt, through a kind of mystical dialogue with the icon, comes to understand that her life is somehow preventing her from having this entrance that she's looking for, that the no is coming from her somehow and not from the crowd or from another source. And she understands that she wants to change her life. And so that's the point at which she asks Mary, the mother of Jesus, to help her change her life. And at that point, she is able to go into the, um, into the church and venerate the Holy Cross. But when she comes out, she doesn't know what to do next. And again, I find this very, a very real un understanding of this story for me is that she comes out and she's like, okay, so now what? I said I was going to change my life, but how am I going to change my life? And she hears a voice from far away. And she hears the voice say, if you cross the river, you will find a beautiful rest. And she takes that, that voice to be for her. And so she um, asks somebody, where's the river? You know, because she's a stranger in this place. She doesn't know this place. She asks somebody, where's the river? They, they point her in the direction of the Jordan River. And she travels that 12 kilometers um, to the Jordan River. And she crosses over the river. And she lives the rest of her life in the desert as a recluse. And um, the reason we know this story, the reason we've heard this story, is because there was another monk, um, a monk named Zosimus, who the story says was from one of the old monasteries in the desert. So one of those original monasteries. And he was a great monk. 
a really, really good monk. And at some point, he was such a good monk that a little voice in his head said, a little voice in his head said, there are no more teachers for you. You are, um, you've ascended above everyone else. There's no one left to teach you. And he was a good enough monk to recognize that that was a very dangerous position for him to be in. So he left the monastery where he had been all of his life and he traveled into an unknown place and he found these monks that were by the river Jordan and they had this very interesting practice. They would go into the desert during Lent and they would spend all of Lent in the desert. And you could, if you were this kind of monk, you could choose to bring supplies with you for the whole time, for the whole six weeks, or you could you could decide that you were going to um, go into the desert with nothing and you were going to trust God to take care of you. You could do it either way. But the number one rule was you couldn't talk to other monks about what you were doing. And if you saw them in the desert, you had to run away from them. So Zosimus finds these monks. He goes into the desert thinking that he's going to find himself a guru in the desert. He's going to find himself a, a new teacher, somebody who can really teach him what the Christian tradition is all about, what his monkhood is all about, what it means to live as a follower of Christ. He decides that the person he's looking for is in the desert. And so he joins these other monks on this adventure into the desert, and he travels there during Lent. And he goes days and days and days without finding anyone, and then he sees this figure. And he decides that that's the person he's been looking for. And he chases after her. He thinks it's a man. He chases after her and she runs away from him. And then eventually they encounter one another um, through his deep desire to find this new teacher. And when he discovers that she's a woman, he longs to hear her story. So unlike Serapion, who we encountered earlier, he doesn't misunderstand her. He immediately understands her, and he understands himself better. And the two of them become deep friends over a short period of time. And um, he eventually carries her story back to the other monks and dedicates his life to telling her story. So that's the story of Mary of Egypt, in a nutshell. And... Um, what I did is that I um, took the 7th century document that we have um, of Mary of Egypt, the 7th century story that was written down. We think by the monk Sophronius, who became the patriarch of Jerusalem. Um, we have that. I took that story and I tried to turn it into a kind of map. And then I walked that map, starting in um, Upper Egypt in Nubia, where in some ways you can still see how people live in a very ancient way. They've chosen to live um, on islands in the Nile without um, modern conveniences and very ancient way. So I went there to sort of see how ancient Egyptians lived. And then I went to Alexandria and I tried to explore what that city was like and what, what it might have meant to be a street prostitute in that place. And then I traveled on to Jerusalem and I, um, I spent some time at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where, after all my research, I discovered that there was a chapel dedicated to Mary of Egypt, which had been closed for about 70 years. And um, and we could talk about that more in the questions if you want, but I I convinced the um I convinced the the monks to open the chapel so that I could see what was in the chapel of Mary of Egypt. 
Um, and so that was um, an important discovery along the way. It was a chapel that was established by Russian pilgrims um, and that was was cared for by Russian pilgrims for a long time and for probably about 150 years. And then I went on to the desert and into the um, and did a did a very strange and difficult hike through the um, Judean desert to Jericho um, to try to track a little bit of the of the path of Mary of Egypt there. And then I crossed over into Jordan and there I discovered that there is actually an archeological site devoted to Mary of Egypt, where um, the archeologists who uncovered the, um, this, uncovered this site believes that people, thousands of people, pilgrims crossed over the Jordan river to this site either during Mary's lifetime where she in fact was a teacher. That's one of his theories or in following her foot, following in her footsteps, very much in the way that I was doing. Um, but they, there were so many of them that they eventually built little buildings for them. And that place to this day is called by local people, the palace of the lady, the lady being Mary of Egypt. So that is the story, my story of Mary of Egypt and um, how I tried to find her. My book, my book about this wild adventure is called wild woman. Um, and it's it it tells both the story of Mary of Egypt and then a little bit about my own search for Mary um, and what I discovered along the way. So um, I welcome your questions and um, look forward to just a little more conversation about all of this. I hope you enjoyed that lecture about the women of the Christian desert and especially about Mary of Egypt. Just a reminder, new episodes of Season 3 will begin on February 14, 2024. We will begin with a conversation with Elizabeth Schrader-Pulzer and Diana Butler-Bass about the life and legacy of Mary Magdalene and what that means for us today. Join us for the search. You can email me at insearchof at christiancentury.org. Also go to our website, christiancentury.org slash insearchof to sign up for our newsletter and connect with us. Please follow this podcast and rate it on your favorite podcast app. This helps other listeners find this podcast. This has been a production of The Christian Century, a thoughtful, independent, progressive magazine for today.